listening to a podcast by the leadership ministry team at Texas Methodist Foundation. TMF's leadership ministry connects diverse, high-capacity leaders in conversations and environments that create a network of courage, learning, and innovation in order to help the church lean into its God-appointed mission. For more information, visit tmf-fdn.org. In South Texas, we call reservoirs tanks. These tanks provide water when the normal water supply is not adequate or available. It's not too much to say that they are the difference between life and death for every living thing in our area. The deer, coyotes, various birds and small animals, fish, frogs, turtles, all who live in or near these reservoirs testify to their continuity and generosity through the years. These tanks or reservoirs expand the resilience of the land to sustain life until a new normal reveals itself. Ecologists define resilience as the capacity of a system or enterprise to absorb disturbance and reorganize so that it retains its core purpose and identity in the face of dramatically changed circumstances. The more one can build capacity to absorb disturbance and maintain function, the more resilient something becomes. Resilience work requires that we constantly reflect on what we are doing and why we are doing it. For people of faith to continue to build toward the world that God imagines, I believe we will need to drink deeply from reservoirs of the Spirit, particularly the dimensions of hope, purpose, and courage. This podcast is an invitation to these reservoirs that God has provided. May we find sustenance for this time and join hands with one another in repairing and creating God's new creation. Welcome to Reservoirs of Resilience. I'm Lisa Greenwood, Vice President of Leadership Ministry at TMF. You just heard Bishop Janice Huey reading from her recent publication entitled Reservoirs of Resilience, which inspired this podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us for our sixth and final episode. In this episode, we'll follow the same format as the others. You'll hear first from Bishop Huey, who will share an excerpt from her writing on resilience. And then we'll dig deeper into the topic with our guest and end the episode with some key takeaways from the conversation. Our topic for this episode is the narratives of resilience, and our guest is Bishop Robert Schneezy, Bishop of the Rio Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. Our conversation with Bishop Schneezy is rich with insight about how narrative shapes us and our response to adversity. Bishop Schneezy shares with us personal stories from his time as a pastor that illustrate this idea that the stories we tell ourselves shape our response as leaders and congregations to changing and difficult circumstances. The connection between narratives and resilience is palpable, and by the end of the episode, I suspect that like us, you'll be considering the narratives that are shaping your way of seeing and leading. 
I'm so glad you get to hear Bishop Schneezy share with us. But first, to set up our topic today, let's listen to an excerpt from Bishop Huey's writing on the narratives of resilience. In his new book, Life is in the Transitions, Bruce Feiler points to the work of Marshall Duke at Emory University to describe three categories of family narratives, ascending, descending, and oscillating. Ascending narratives sound like this. We came from nothing, we worked hard, we made it big. Descending narratives sound like this. We used to have it all, then we lost everything. Oscillating narratives are the strongest. They sound like this. We've had our ups and downs in our family. Your grandfather was vice president of the bank, but his house burned down. Your aunt was the first girl to go to college, but she got breast cancer. He points out that children from these families who know that lives take different shapes are much better equipped to face life's inevitable disruptions. These oscillating stories are narratives of resilience. In the early days of the pandemic, the pastor of a congregation in San Antonio invited more than a dozen laypersons to share what he called wilderness stories as part of a Sunday evening conversation on Zoom. The people and stories were carefully curated, one story per evening shared by individuals who were willing to be quite vulnerable about their experience and their feelings. These were stories of loss, addiction, post-traumatic stress from war injuries, sexual assault, financial ruin, and on and on. They were also stories of God's grace and mercy in time of trouble. One by one, over three months, the stories were shared and people engaged in deep conversation with one another. Over time, congregational relationships were strengthened and congregational identity was clarified. These Methodist Christians know they are resilient, both as individuals and as a congregation. They have shared stories of hope and courage and purpose and God's presence in difficult times as well as good times. In fact, the recordings have become the beginning of a congregational library about resilience. Jim Collins calls this kind of work preserving the core while stimulating progress. Joining us in our conversation about narratives of resilience is Bishop Robert Schneezy. Bishop Schneezy currently serves the Rio, Texas Annual Conference and resides in San Antonio. He was assigned to Rio, Texas in September of 2016 after serving 12 years as the Bishop of the Missouri Annual Conference. Prior to his election as Bishop, he served 15 years as Senior Pastor of First United Methodist Church, McAllen, Texas, less than 10 miles from the U.S. border with Mexico. Bishop Schneezy is the author of several best-selling books, including the recently revised and updated Five Practices of Fruitful Congregations. Bishop Schneezy's most recent project, Border Crossing, is a series of readings drawn from his experiences serving the church and growing up on the border. 
Many of us have experienced Bishop Schneezy as a wise leader and an insightful teacher. These stories reveal him to be a storyteller, a narrative poet who paints vivid pictures with words and evokes emotion. It's a stunning gift. Welcome, Bishop Schneezy. We are really glad you're here. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's good to be with you. I look forward to this conversation. So we want to begin with an invitation for you to share a story, a story of resilience from your life or one that's close to your heart that you carry with you. So uh, so I think I'm going to use one that's related to the ministry in the, in the church, because probably many of the people who are listening, that's, uh, that's some of what they're listening for. And uh, when I think about significant kind of setbacks, hitting a brick wall, and then watching how a community of faith deals with that, one of the things that comes to mind was when I was serving as pastor of First United Methodist Church in McAllen, as you said, down along the border. And I had been there, I was in my sixth, uh, just starting my seventh year, and things were going well. If, if we were, you know, talking about ascending narratives of things getting better, you know, year by year, we had that in spades. Uh, so we uh, eventually reached a point where we were um, growing beyond the capacity of our downtown facility. Uh, that was right on Main Street, a historic building. We were facing other difficulties with all of that. And so part of our strategic like five-year plan that involved uh, extending our youth ministries and children ministries and missional ministries, all of these things, was to acquire more parking downtown because this was a pretty good-sized congregation that actually owned and controlled 35 parking spaces. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And, and so uh, we developed this plan that not only had all these ministry components, but also some very strategic, we've got to acquire this piece of property and this piece of property and this piece of property to secure our future. One of those was this small piece of property that only had like, it would have added about 35 more parking spaces and it was available at an extreme cost. And we debated back and forth. We dickered with the owner. We That went on for some months and it became kind of a, key uh, project of the Board of Trustees to figure out how to acquire that. And in March of 1995, it was was spring break, uh, just beginning. The owner of the property and our representative from trustees shook hands and settled on a price. It was a high price, but that was so key to our future. This was the linchpin piece of property. And uh, so it went. And a couple of days later, I left with my family in the car to drive to Houston to visit my sister and and I get a phone call from this uh, representative from trustees that represents us. And he was just quiet and just, you know, Robert, it's fallen through. He backed out. He's, uh, he's selling it to somebody else. And I, we're just stunned. And so we got that word to the trustees. It was going to be four weeks before we met together as a trustees, but each of them heard that news. And uh, four weeks later, we had our first trustees meeting after this, and it was a lunch meeting. And I remember the feel of that. It was like going to a funeral lunch. Hmm. Uh, trustees sitting around this table, and uh, the, the fellow who had worked on the property told us about what happened. And people are eating their lunch or looking down at their plates, not even looking at one another. Long silences when he finishes, nobody knowing what to ask. He does say, well, there's this other piece of property that's about two blocks away. And if we you know, can secure that, that would give us about 20 parking spaces and we could use a golf cart. And, it, and everybody's just, their shoulders are slumped. <laughs> uh, this is not going well. 
And that was uh, one of the deadliest meetings I've ever been <laughs> a part of. It just, people were so down. This it's, it's like, what's happened to the five-year strategic plan? And that property is going to go to someone else. And so we're going to be more confined and limited than we ever have been. So we're all still pushing our food around on our plate. This businesswoman who probably at the time was in her 40s, she just looks up and says to everyone, I can't believe we're going to put another dime into this property downtown. My own parents can't come to this church because the restrooms are upstairs. We have to hire security guards to be crossing guards to just get our children from one part of the facility to another across the main street. We have, it's not just parking issues. I mean, parking on Sunday, people have to park two blocks away. And uh, parents in the day school, they, they can't, there's no way for them to even let their kids off safely. I can't believe we're going to keep putting money in this. And I'm just shocked. Everyone else is shocked. They all look up from their plates. And then one of the other uh, trustees, a lawyer, says, if we were serious about being the church of the future and reaching more people, we would be talking about soccer fields and not parking spaces. Wow. And all of a sudden, it's like popcorn. One after another, jumping into this conversation. At the end of that hour, they voted unanimously to recommend to the church council the formation of a task force to consider whether relocation is even a possible possibility. And uh, that passed also in, uh, unanimously at the church council. Relocation had never entered the conversation, not once. This is a historic downtown facility. And after the council named those folks, that search, uh, excuse me, that, uh, that committee got to work. To make a long story short, after they came to their conclusions and recommendations, and it went to a church conference about six months later, where with a whole church full of hundreds of people, Church conference was held, and the church voted 85% in favor of relocation, 7% against, and 8% abstaining. And so there was this, uh, this, this surge of, of new life. And, you know, I look back at that, and we had to sit in that discomfort for those four weeks before that next trustees meeting. We had to suffer the loss. We had for the whole congregation to absorb what it what had uh, what had happened to them and what had happened to us? Now it took it took three years before we acquired land, and another three years before we built that first facility, and then it took uh, about thirteen years before the sanctuary was built. Mm. But that church continued to kind of thrive with this new vision. And what's interesting about this this uh, you know resilience. It's like what were the dynamics in that conversation among those trustees? What was the some, something about our core identity as a church that allowed us to respond to that defeat with a, with a whole different plan that maintained our core identity of who we are and what our purpose is. Sometimes you think of resilience, you get knocked down, you jump back up. It, resilience often takes a long time. <laughs> it, mm. it puts you on a path that lasts for a long time. And so that church went without a sanctuary for what, 16, 17 years or something. But, uh, but they're, uh, they're doing well now. And I've, uh, I've been gone for 16 years and I've been invited three times back to speak to the congregation. And each of those times 
what I was asked to do is to repeat the story about that relocation. And of course, the last two or three times I'm talking to people where two thirds or three quarters of them have no experience of that event. Right. So, uh, so that's an experience of, uh, of resilience when I think of congregations. Bishop Schneezy, you are such a good storyteller. And part of it's because you pay such careful attention to detail and, and, and it has so much power. speak a little more to now the definition of narrative and how you see the role of narrative, just like going back and being asked to tell the story again, speak to the role of resilience um, through narrative. So uh, to me, the narrative of a family, the narrative of a church or of a community is kind of that backdrop larger story that helps them understand uh, what's going on in the small increments that they're living through, if that makes sense. So when you think about a real narrative in a novel you read, it kind of follows it, what they call a narrative arch, that, uh, you know, things are as they are, then some conflict comes up, and, and then they try to overcome that, there's more obstacles, and eventually there's a, there's a kind of point, a, a turning point. And, uh, and I mean, it, that's what I mean by, by the word kind of narrative, when we use it about organization, sometimes those narratives are spoken aloud and sometimes they're quiet. Sometimes they're not a real honest appraisal of, uh, of the truth of what's going on in the community. I, I know Bishop Huey has, uh, in her essay on resilience, Reservoirs of Resilience, has quoted uh, Bruce Filer, who describes ascending narratives. And these are, are, are those contexts in which there's this general sense Everything's just getting better day by day and year by year. We used to be that way, now we're this way, and we're going to be even better in the future. Everything's kind of ascending. And then there are these descending narratives. And that's like everything was great back in the 1950s, and then it started going downhill in the 60s, and then this in the 70s, and kids these days. And, and everything's getting worse with each passing month or year, this descending narrative. So, so then uh, Filer says that the, the kind of the healthiest is, is, is the oscillating narratives. And, and by oscillating, that's not a term we use very much in ordinary language. And you might think of an oscillating fan going from left to right, right to left. That's not what he means. I think what you have to picture is, uh, is rather a, a, a wavy horizontal line that rises and falls. And so it slopes up and then slopes down again and with high points and low points and upturns as well as upsets. And Filer's point is, is that the oscillating narratives are the healthiest because they're the truest about what really goes on. And so a church that's, that, you know, believes all its own uh, media, that they're just getting better all the time. There's nothing wrong with a, with, with a positive narrative it's just that it's not the full truth. It's, it's not that it's untrue, it's that it's not the full truth. Because every, every church or community or family that is kind of going from strength to strength is facing upsets, setbacks, uh, pain and suffering along the way that isn't all, that isn't included in that notion of a kind of a ascending narrative. And the same way with descending narratives, 
So many of our churches now, they look back at the years of decline, the aging in the congregations, and they're just dominated by this descending narrative that things will never be better. They're, 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 they're going to be worse. Instead of realizing it's that things are never going to be the same, not that things are never going to be better. And that, and that again, a descending narrative, it's not that it's not the truth. It's that it's not the whole truth. Mm-hmm. Right. In the, yeah. that bit of that, that kind of visible signs of descending, there are all kinds of lives being changed and people being touched and the grace of God being taught. I love that. That feels really important. It's not that it's not true. It's just not the whole truth. Yeah, back for a minute about uh, that, that use of the word narrative. You can think, uh, pastors can think of narrative preaching as a, as a way of uh, communicating. And when you use narrative, it's not, not primarily informational and it's not didactic and it's not uh, diagnosing. It's not, therefore, you ought to. It's telling a story that is true and honest that, that kind of draws people in and they can see themselves in. And they have this, aha, I see what you mean. That is the truth about who we are as a community or as a church. And, and so, I, so I, I like telling stories. It is, a, it is one of the most useful tools in the toolbox in, in trying to communicate larger, more complex, and, and more complicated and conflictive uh, ideas. I, I'm reminded of someone, it was a, a church musician and, and pastor, who said there's two purposes to music in worship. But one is to teach and remind us of the scripture and theology and faith. But the second of music and worship is to create community in the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you're singing, it is changing how you are in relationship to the other people who are singing alongside you. You're more connected. There's a harmony that goes on. There's a spirituality of belonging to one another because we're part of this community of experience of singing together. Well, uh, a good uh, narrative description of, of what's going on in a community and its history, where it's come from, and, and, and what's going on now, a good narrative description creates that same community in the moment. It's, it's not just all information. It's this all of a sudden, we're all a part of this story together. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that makes so much sense. And having been in a room when you have done one of your readings, for example, from border crossings, we have that experience, right? I mean, in other words, there is this emotional experience or reaction. Reaction isn't even right, but we're in the moment of the narrative together with all that are in the room. And so there's this shared experience and and almost a intimacy, a community that's formed. I I love that connection with with singing and with a, a good narrative, a good a good story that does that. So taking that, I'm wondering if you think there are narratives that exist in the church and and maybe among leaders that you think uh, need to change. <laughs> sure, as I said, you can't really walk into any church without hearing descending narratives. And in many of our churches, those have the upper hand. Mm, yeah. And that creates a weightiness. It's, it's disincentivizing. Mm-hmm. Not just to people who've been a part of that church all the time to go to meetings and just hear more 
more people talking about how good it used to be and it's not like that anymore and it's never going to get better. But also think about what that feels like to someone who's new to the community or who's testing out the community or growing up in the community. It's like, why would I want to belong to a community that, uh, that sees itself in such a negative story? So not to put you on the spot, Bishop, but I'm I'm wondering if you have, I don't know, experience or thoughts to share with leaders about how they might help shift that narrative from that descending heavy narrative. It's again to tell the full story. Hmm. Often when folks share that descending narrative, it's it's that things aren't the way they were when I was at an earlier point in my life mm-hmm. because it was of this sort uh, when, you know, kids were quieter and more respectful of their parents. I mean, it's, it's, it's all this kind of nostalgia. It's this mm-hmm. looking back instead of looking at, you know, the, the new expressions of music that are going on now that are reaching folks and uh, raising people's spirits and connecting people to God and to one another that are forms that would not have been valued 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So as far as getting people to change the narrative, it's not like don't say anything negative around here. That's not helpful. It's like, let's just, let's just tell the truth. You know, yes, we're struggling a little bit on our budget this year, but we've had years when, when we've done this before. Let me tell you another story. (laughs) So so this is uh, also when I was a pastor and, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong a little bit, but you'll get the sense of the story because I don't remember the numbers exactly. But we'd had trouble with our roof. And, and so the trustees were doing their homework on it and uh, estimated that it was going to cost about twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 to get this thing fixed. And so that was reported at whatever the church council was or something. And, and But they were going to get you know true bids before the next meeting and get some experts out. Sure enough, they, they get three people come look at it and take bids. And so uh, I had heard the news just that afternoon before the church council. So just a few of us had. But the chair of trustees stands up in front of the room and uh, there's, you know, 30 people or so there and says, remember how last month we talked about the roof, uh, 12, 15,000. Well, we actually had three people come out, three different companies uh, do the bids. It's going to be 150,000 to 180,000 dollars to do what needs to be done. Silence. Stunned oh silence. Oh my. And, and and you could just see by people's posture, like they're just, they've just been hit with something. Now, whenever that happens in a group, uh, you know, when you're kind of a, a, a student of uh, human interaction and how groups work and things, they inevitably all turn their, their face to look at the one or two or three patriarchs or matriarchs in the group. And by that, I don't mean a negative controlling person, or, uh, but, but a person whose influence is disproportionate because of their generosity and trust and confidence people have in them, their wisdom, the fact that they're not just serving their, themselves. They help the group make good decisions. Everybody turns their eyes toward that those one or two people. And what they're checking out is... Oh no, 
what's going to happen to us? Is this all right or is this not all right? <laughs> okay. So one of those in this congregation was a obstetrician. And he delivered, you know, like half the babies in the congregation for the previous 30 years. High trust, deeply respected, leader of the church. And all these eyes just turned to him. And, uh, and I remember, I can picture it in my mind as if it's today. And, uh, and he kind of looks down at his lap. And he lifts his hand and he says, well, that's a lot of money. <laughs> but remember when we had to renovate the sanctuary and, uh, and we thought it was just going to cost this much, but it ended up costing so much more. Do you remember when the organ broke down, we realized we were going to have to replace that thing. And, uh, and, and we, we just couldn't figure out how we were going to do it. But we figured it out, and we made it through. And we're going to figure this out, too. I don't know how right now, but we're going to figure this out. And then he throws in this, by the way, this church, this magnificent facility was built two years before the Great Depression. And now, he, he wasn't speaking from memory. He was speaking of having heard the story of the founding of that church. This was built like two years before the Great Depression, and so two years in, all of a sudden, nobody had any resources. And so the, the church just took on this project that lasted for years. And people sacrificed and they figured it out. And that's how we're here today. So everybody just breathes deeply. <laughs> it's like you see the tension go out of their shoulders. He didn't say, here's the plan. We just got to think about a loan for this much. And we got to pay, make these payments. We got to... But, but think about what he didn't do. He also didn't panic and say, oh, my gosh, I don't know what we're going to do. We're probably going to have to start laying off from staff. I don't, I don't see how we're going to continue that youth program. We're, we're going to have to ask for more money from the day school. I don't, there's no way that we can afford 180000 If he'd have done that, what would, be, what would people be talking about as they drive home and share the meeting with their spouse? You know, right. it's panic mode. We're in crisis. Instead, everyone drove home. And, uh, you know, talked to his or her spouse and said, wow, that's much more expensive than we thought it was going to be. But, you know, we've overcome these other things. Yeah. <laughs> so that's this, that's again, this power of, of narrative to, to shape how we do things. And he didn't deny the hard places and the hard moments in the life of the church. He didn't say, well, all those other things were easy. He said, all those other things were hard, and yet we saw our way through them. Bishop Schnazy, these are such wonderful stories um, within the life of the congregation, and they bubble up from the congregation itself. They're not nearly as much top-down as they bubble up um, from that. And, and you've told some stories about personal resilience. What does resilience look like at an annual conference level? What does that mean in this time of uncertainty for the larger church? What does resilience, how do, how do we lean into resilience in a time like this? Well, I mean, the more complex the system, the larger it is, the, the more difficult it can be to, to have a single narrative. Because in, even within a church, there are groups that that have one narrative and groups that have a, either a, a different narrative or a conflicting narrative about who they are as a, as, a, as a congregation. Well, the larger that gets in an annual conference, there can be competing neg uh, narratives. Mm -hmm. 
On the other hand, I think it falls to the leaders to do some of that work of that obstetrician mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, did in a, in a room with 30 people. And that is not to deny the difficulties or the challenges ahead, but to talk about you know, how we got to where we are today and what our forebears went through. The annual conference that I serve, the Rio Texas Conference, has multiple sources that stream into it. Most recently, the Rio Grande Conference and the Southwest Texas Conference. And you look at the history of those conferences as well as the African-American streams into the life of our conference, and we have generations and generations of people who faced unbelievable challenges. Not just social challenges, but justice challenges, personal challenges, just trying to make it through. So we have this rich heritage. I mean, this conference, uh, the, the churches of this conference, no matter which of these streams they come out of, started with amazingly courageous people, deeply committed to Christ and wanting the very best for their communities. And uh, have they been perfect? Uh, Have they all done their very best and exceeded expectations? Absolutely not. But, uh, But we're part of a community that needs to continue to tell the story that just as there are many signs of decline, there are many other signs of growth, new life, experimentation, uh, reaching people we've never reached before. And just as uh, we are so divided, there's so many things that divide us, there are also so many things that connect us. There are so many things that connect us. And so I believe one of the roles of leadership is is to kind of use the power of narrative in that and to not be afraid of the oscillating narrative. And, And one final word, I think back to the story I told about that church council And uh, and I'm reminded of a phrase that I I learned this early in my ministry, and I can't even tell you who I'm quoting, but I've quoted it a thousand times. And it's the person with the fullest cup requires the steadiest hand. Mm. Pastors have their cups full right now. Mm -hmm. Lay leaders of congregations, their cups are full with division, secularization, racism, political polarization, pandemic, cups are full, but it requires a steady hand. Uh, It requires an an ability not to panic Hmm. and not to uh, cover up (laughs) uh, or to hide away. It it requires a strategy other than uh, blaming and scapegoating and uh, and instead it's of, of just responsibly engaging the challenges ahead. Bishop Huey, I don't know if that helps or not, but it's like the bigger the organization, the steadier the hand it takes to, uh, to keep, keep the true oscillating story in front of us instead of the descending narratives. I think that's a wonderful way to express it. And, and it helps move all of us toward resilience. So I'm listening to this and thinking, um, I'm thinking about the connection between narrative and resilience. And one of the things I've heard you say, Bishop Schneezy, is a phrase we say all the time, like that, that the first task of a leader is to paint an accurate picture of your current reality, right? Tell the, tell the story, oscillating though it may be, of the fullness of where you are right now. Uh, paint the picture 
for, for your folks. But I'm also hearing you say that doesn't mean don't draw on where you've come from, not in a nostalgia way, but in a rem- remembering who you are and what are the stories that got you here because they speak to this moment. Um, so, so those are two ways I'm hearing you talk about narrative as in painting the picture of current reality, but also drawing on the roots of who your history and your, uh, and who you are, uh, that, that have brought you to this moment. And so then one, I want to see if that's accurate. And two, um, I wonder if, but if you can speak to how narrative can be helpful for the church being resilient today, but also as we think about like what's the post-pandemic era, and and is there a connection between sort of narrative and what it means to be the church moving forward? And oh my, I, there's so much in that question. I. Um... You're right. It's not just be uh, transparent and not afraid of the truth of telling uh, what reality is. It's not to run away from reality or hide it or something. But there also is that component of not just looking at the current situation and anticipating leaning into the future. It's about looking at what is the core identity and the core purpose that that caused us to, to be here in the first place. And to re-examine that and to replay that. And so a lot of this, uh, you know, the power of narrative is to, uh, is to lift that, that core identity and that core purpose that it may be buried under so much clutter and immediate crisis management that it's got to surface again. Because if you can get it to surface again and people can hear it and say, I'm a part of that. Yeah, that's and that's so a part of me. Uh, it doesn't solve all that clutter. It doesn't solve all that conflict or all the challenges, but it does give you a starting place to have the conversation about thinking what's what's next. Right. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but but it, it does seem to me that you know, to talk of resilience is is uh, not just you know how quick you can bounce back. Right. It's, it's also kind of how steady you can be to those fundamental values and identities and purposes that right. uh, that shape who you are. Right. Yeah, actually, that's really nice, Bishop. Right. I'm thinking about Bishop Huey's paper, and she talks about this reservoir of purpose. And I mean, that's it right there. You just said, if we can get in touch with our story of who we are, I, or our identity and our core purpose— and frankly, remember that we're part of a larger story, right? right? The biblical narrative and and remind us of who we are. Then then whatever the next phase brings, whatever the post-pandemic era looks like, uh, we we have a sense of of who our core identity and our core purpose. Yeah, I love that. So the last thing we're asking all our guests is to complete these three sentences, and it's sort of a rapid fire round. So just first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. So uh, the first, resilience is. Resilience is. Well, for me, it's not the easy when something knocks you down, just jump back up. That too often devolves into a kind of blaming the victim. But if you can't get back on your feet immediately, then what's wrong with you? Why don't you have resilience? You know, you can't just jump back after a death, after a cancer diagnosis, a hurricane, a job loss, an economic reversal. 
So I don't like those many definitions of resilience have an element of speed and quickness in them. And, uh, and I can't go there. So for me, resilience is that ability to absorb significant disruption and yet eventually reorganize and respond in a way that maintains that fundamental core identity and purpose. So now you're in different circumstances and now you may be doing things differently than you were before, but the core you carries on. Another way of thinking about that, Lisa, is to think of the opposite of resilience, mm-hmm. brittleness. Oh. Brittleness means you bump into something, you just break, mm. you know, and there's no reorganization after that. Yeah, nice. Good. Thanks. Okay, two. When I think of resilience, I think of? When I think of resilience, I don't think uh, so much of definitions or technical descriptions. <laughs> I think of people, I think of communities, I think of churches, I think of stories and faces and photos. I think of people who I've known who faced incredible personal loss. I think of communities like uh, Joplin, Missouri. I was bishop there after the tornado or South Texas and Hurricane Harvey. I think of small towns in rural Texas that have declined in population, but still have a sense of a community, a sense of vibrancy. The picture that comes to mind when I hear resilience is is, is more like a picture album of experiences with people at the center. If you want to cultivate resilience. Uh, So this is going to sound too trite, maybe too simple. I've been a journal keeper uh, for decades, but the last entry for 2020 was March 15th, for reasons I can't really explain. Mm. For some reason, I'm not able to do that. Uh, And there's this grayness that's kind of settled in on me that's caused me to honestly struggle with my work, uh, my family, my play, my writing, my hobbies. And, uh, And so like so many other folks, I've been in kind of a funk during this time. And, um, and I don't have that journal writing that I do that was much more comprehensive and, and more reflective. But, uh, but a, a couple of months into this, I felt the need to, uh, to kind of keep two little books. <laughs> and one of those I call my book of delights. And I only allow myself, this is the discipline of it, to, to write on one line a day. I can't write a paragraph or a page. And it's just something that causes me to smile it gives me uh, gives me a sense of delight. So, yesterday, seeing the sunrise as I set out on a long drive in the crisp morning and opened my windows as I drove, so that uh, I just feel the change of weather that has come to South Texas. Uh, last night, my sons uh, stayed up all night working in our kitchen, making what seemed to be tons of beef jerky, uh, so that they could give it away as uh, as Christmas presents to the church staff where my son works and, and to just listen to the bantering and clattering of pans and the, 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 the rich aromas, to smell the rich aromas uh, throughout the house just makes me smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have my little book of delights, but then I have another page in another notebook that, that is my list of losses. And that's from some pretty significant things. Now, We've been fortunate. We haven't lost any family members to, uh, to, to COVID, but we did lose out on being together for my parents' 70th wedding anniversary. 
and my father's 90th birthday. Uh, we missed out on being together with that whole family of clergy and laity that, that are the annual conference. And I'm not saying I miss the business meeting so much, but the worship and the fellowship and the reconnection with the uh, people who've been a part of my life for, uh, uh, for, for 50 years or more. And, and, and some of this is little stuff, minor stuff, you know, a favorite Mexican food restaurant that I ordinarily would eat lunch at maybe once every six weeks. And I haven't been to it since March. And for some reason, writing down those losses and just naming them, the lost vacation, the lost this, the lost that. Um, and then also having this other list in another place <laughs> that are that is the book of delights, the conversation with a friend I hadn't talked to for a long time, and uh, those kinds of things. It's it's like I've found I didn't um, I didn't set out to do this, but what I, what these things you add them all together and they end up being a collection of micro oscillations. <laughs> That's just what I was just thinking. The small ups and downs that uh, that remind me of maybe the larger ebb and flow of ministry and of life. We all like ascending narratives, uh, and it's not that they're not true. It's just that they're not complete. Mm-hmm. And we all fear unending descending narratives. And again, it's not that they're necessarily untrue. It's just that they are incomplete as well. And so my little book of delights and my little list of losses reminds me of the everyday resilience of living that is uh, perhaps an ongoing uh, practice for me to run through the larger challenges that are inevitable. That's it right there. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Bishop Schnazy, for being with us. It's good to be with you. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. As we end this episode on the narratives of resilience, Bishop, what are your reflections and takeaways from today? Bishop Sinaisi did a wonderful um, job of telling us a story and a story about resilience. And in listening to that story, I mean, it reminds me of the importance of the same stories being told over and over again when they point toward resilience. When McAllen first made that decision to relocate, and then we think about how long it was before they finally built, got the new sanctuary, to know the story and to hear it again and again, it becomes a part of who we are. And it allows us to look back on something and say, well, we're not where we want to be yet, but we're further along than we were, and then you name the event. And I, I, I thought that was, it creates community as the story is told with new generations. And, and I found that very helpful. So I, I love that he talks about the importance of story in resilience because it reminds us that we're part of a larger story, right? right. Which is, is what it means to be part of the Christian faith, that we're part of this sort of larger narrative. And it, it also made me, it, it reminded me of one of our earlier podcasts with Stephen Lewis, who shared that insight about purpose 
being part of a long line, right? That we go back to our ancestors and move forward for generations, that that our purpose is drawn out of this larger story that we're a part of. And that that leads to a deep sense of purpose, but also a deep kind of resilience that comes from being a part of a larger story. And it keeps us part of a larger community than just ourselves. Right. Um, it, 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 it widens the who we are. Right. I, I think the other, another comment that he made that that rang true with me is this sense of the role of leadership when he said the person with the fullest cup requires the steadiest hand. And whether you're a lay person or clergy person or whatever, if you're in a leadership role, if you're parenting, if you're in a leadership role, what you're trying to do and when things may be swirling all about you is not panic, it's to engage, it's to listen, it's to be responsible, it's um, to help people imagine something different. That takes a really steady hand and resilience um, not to get caught up in your own anxiety. And that that rang true with me in a powerful way. One of the other things that I that I really took away from what Bishop Schnazy talked about is that resilience takes a long time. Right. That it's not an uh, you know you fall down and it's an instant rebound, mm-hmm. but that it 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 takes time to build resilience. And it, it reminded me again of an earlier episode with Todd Bolsinger, where he talked about the fact that that resilience is formed. It's not about you have it or you don't. It It's formed. And, and what Bishop Schnazy talked about is that resilience is kind of, it's about how steadily you can ground yourself in those fundamental values that shape who you are. And that's part of that forming resilience over time. You know, when I think about how much uh, change is happening around us in all the different ways, um, in the United Methodist Church, in the culture, in the world, to, to simply sit back and breathe because it's, and know that this doesn't have to get worked out in the next three days, but rather there's a space here that we can lean into God's time, Cairo's time, and, and not find ourselves imprisoned by Kronos. So good. So good. Mm. Well, you all, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we hope this podcast has sparked an idea or a question within you so that you can have a conversation with your team or with a friend. And if you've received some nourishment from listening today, we do hope you'll share with a friend and leave us a review. Until next time, may you drink deeply from the reservoirs of hope, of purpose, and courage. Reservoirs of Resilience is a production of TMF's Leadership Ministry with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Billy Crockett. Listen to more Billy's music on YouTube and on billycrockett.com. Make sure to view our show notes and website for more information about all of our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at TMF's Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.